uh, weave a couple of our classes. Uh, so th- we're going to try to get through uh, the last four chapters in two weeks. So we'll see how that goes today. Um. <clears throat> Dear Father, we are helpless sinners saved by grace, but we are also clean saints in Christ and uh, your children, and one day we'll be the bride of Christ. Help us to remember these things uh, when we hit low points in our lives and help us to remember them um, when we're doing well as well, that, that our purpose is found in you. You are our king and our master. I pray you bless this class in Jesus' name. Amen. So chapter 33 is basically uh, a log of the, uh, the journey of Israel over 40 years through the wilderness. So I'm going to read verses 1 and 2, and then Jed, if you'll get the, the microphone back there and get that ready, we'll have other people read from here on out. These are the stages of the people of Israel when they went out of the land of Egypt by their companies under the leadership of Moses and Aaron. Moses wrote down their starting places stage by stage by command of the Lord. And these are their stages according to their starting places. Um, So right here, we, we understand from previously that, well, let me just ask you, what was the... What was the way that uh, determined whether they camped in one place or moved to another place? What was the, what was the deciding, determ- the cloud, the pillar cloud, right? So when the cloud was there resting over the tabernacle, they stayed. When the cloud picked up and began to move, then they moved, right? And so they could be in a place for a couple days. They could be in a place for a year, two years. I mean, they could, depending on it, uh, they could... But it was all according to the rule of of the pillar. Um, So Moses wrote down their starting places stage by stage by the command of the Lord. So the the actual stages were by the command of the Lord. But God actually commands, I think, Moses to record this too. Like this is important. Even though there are portions of these uh, stages that... We just look at and, you know, I don't, it's like a, somebody logging their trip, a month-long trip out west, and, you know, we stopped at that campground and then over here and did this, and, you know, uh, and, you know, to most people it's like, okay, glad you did that, but uh, we don't really know all the distinct purposes through it. Um, uh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it, it doesn't take long to ravage a land, right? Uh, so, and I don't really even know how the animals existed. I mean, the people lived on the manna, but how did the animals live? I mean, they're in a wilderness region, so um, very interesting. All right, let's read verses 3 and 4. Would you give that to your dad, Jet, if you got the mic there? They set out from Ramses in the first month, on the fifteenth day of the first month, on the day after the Passover. The people of Israel went out triumphantly in the sight of all the Egyptians, while the Egyptians were burying all their firstborn, whom the Lord had struck down among them. On their gods also the Lord executed judgments. Hmm. All right, so right here at the beginning, what details are we given of the of the first stage. What are we told? Yep, okay, so they're they're um they're heading to the edge of the wilderness. Okay, what else? Where do they start? We're given the starting point. Yeah, and that's somewhere right up in here. Uh 
What else are we given? Given the exact day? Now, what is the 15th day of the first month? According to the Jewish calendar. It's the day after Passover. Passover is on the 14th. So you can imagine that this is the, you know, when they, they celebrated the Passover, then they left the next day. So, and that would set the calendar for um, Israel from that point on. I think so, yeah. I mean, you have, to, you have several different calendars that they go through time and they're switching all the time. And so I always get, trust the commentaries when they say, yeah, this is, uh, you know, September 12th, uh, 1262 B.C. Like, I'm like, okay, you know, because I don't know how to, they had lunar calendars, then they went to solar calendars, and, you know, but they still try to follow this, yeah. Ah, uh-huh. Um, what was the condition of their leaving? That's really important. Triumphantly. Um. Mm-hmm. So you see the, the Egyptians watching them triumphantly walk out. What, what might that parallel in the Christian life? Yes, Christ triumphing over Satan, maybe some connections to our triumphing at the end of time, but all, the, all those who are not in Christ will be watching the triumph that, that occurs. So, um, that's right. Yeah, we talked a little bit about that recently, that, that the wealth of the, of the kingdoms of the world um, belongs to God. Oh, they really are. Huh. Yeah. Um, <laughs> there are 42 different sites that will be given. Uh, it breaks down into six groups of seven names. So you can see like seven, seven, seven six of those, right? And seems to be that that's intentional, uh, much like the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew 3 is set in three sets of 14, so um, I don't know exactly. Um, it, it's, I think this is very purposeful for a couple reasons. One, because those numbers, seven, is very important in Scripture. Um, but it's, there are other places that are intentionally left out that we know that they stopped at. So, for instance, in Numbers 11.3, it says that they stopped at Tabra. But that's not in this list anywhere. Uh, Numbers 21.19 says they stopped at Matanah, Nahaliel, and Bamoth. And those places aren't listed here. Um, so I wonder if this uh, connection with sets of seven has to do with the importance of the Sabbath principle. Um, so, uh, which God clearly in the book of Numbers is trying to teaches people the importance of the Sabbath. That's the whole point of the manna, uh, those sorts of things. So, when you, when you mean repeated, like um, some of those places they, they went to more than once, uh, we'll look at that as we go through here, see if there's any that are repeated. Um, but, uh, it's also possible, since there's 42 places, maybe uh, like the site 1 and site 42 are kind of left out, so you have this 40 years of wilderness wanderings. 40 is an important number of Scripture. Um, you know, these are kind of little stabs that we're going to try to make. So I think it's best right now to just go ahead and read verses 5 through 49. And that may be a little bit challenging. Um, uh, Mary, you want to try this? Okay, good. Um. So the people of Israel set out from Ramesses and camped at Succoth. And they set out from Succoth and camped at Ethan, which is on the edge of the wilderness. And they set out from Ethan and turned back to Pi-Haroth, 
which is east of Baal Zephon, and they camped before Migdal. And they set out from before Hiroth and passed through the midst of the sea into the wilderness. And they went a three days' journey in the wilderness of Ethan and camped at Marah. And they set out from Marah and came to Elim. At Elim there were twelve springs of water and seventy palm trees. And they camped there. And they set out from Elim and camped by the Red Sea. And they set out from the Red Sea and camped in the wilderness of Sin. And they set out from the wilderness of Sin and camped at Dovkah. And they set out from Dovkah and camped at Alush. And they set out from Alush and camped at Rephidim, where there was no water for the people to drink. And they set out from Rephidim and camped in the wilderness of Sinai. And they set out from the wilderness of Sinai and camped at Kibroth Hattavah. And they set out from Kibroth Hattavah and camped at Hazaroth. And they set out from Hazaroth and camped at Rithmah. And they set out from Rithmah and camped at Rimen Perez. And they set out from Rimen Perez and camped at Libna. And they set out from Libna and camped at Razah. And they set out from Razah and camped at Kaalatha. And they set out from Kaalatha and camped at Mount Shepher. And they set out from Mount Shepher and camped at Harada. And they set out from Harada and camped at Makaloth. And they set out from Makaloth and camped at Tahoth. And they set out from Tahoth and camped at Terah. And they set out from Terah and camped at Mithkah. And they set out from Mithkah and camped at Hashmonah. And they set out from Hashmonah and camped at Maseroth. And they set out from Maseroth and camped at Benajakan. And they set out from Benajakan and camped at Hor Hagadad. And they set out from Hor Hagadad and, and camped at Jab, Jabahoth. And they set out from Jabahah and camped at Abrona. And they set out from Abrona and camped at Ezion Geber. And they set out from Ezion Geber and camped in the wilderness of Zin, that is, Kadesh. And they set out from Kadesh and camped at Mount Hor on the edge of the land of Edom. And Aaron the priest went up Mount Hor at the command of the Lord and died there. In the fortieth year after the people of Israel had come out of the land of Egypt, on the first day of the fifth month. And Aaron was 123 years old when he died on Mount Hor. And the Canaanite, the king of Arad, who lived in the Nagab in the land of Canaan, heard of the coming of the people of Israel. And they set out from Mount Hor and camped at Zalmanah. And they set out from Zalmanah and camped at Punan. And they set out from Punan and camped at Oboth. And they set up from Oboth and camped at Ea-Abarim in the territory of Moab. And they set out from Eam and camped at Dibengad. And they set out from Dibengad and camped at Almon-Diblathame. And they set out from Almon-Diblathame and camped in the mountains of Abraham before Nebo. And they set out from the mountains of Abraham and camped in the plains of Moab by the Jordan at Jericho. They camped by the Jordan from Beth Jeshemoth as far as Abel Shittim in the plain, plains of Moab. Whew. Good job, Mary. <laughs> um, okay, uh, observations that you guys make from all that. That's probably the place where the rock is. Uh, uh, there's a couple places where water comes from the rock, and that's probably one of them. Yeah. <clears throat> well, yeah, because when you when you think of uh, you're there 40 years, and there's only about 40 sites, um, you know, and you can imagine how long it would take to set up the tabernacle, get everything ordered, you know. You, we, 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 at least our family with Jenny and everything, we don't really like to stay at one place for a night because we take a tent and put it into the 
into the hotel room and pop it up and put Jenny's air mattress in it and put her in it. And, you know, it's, a, it's an ordeal to do that when we travel. Um, but you can imagine doing it with the tabernacle. <laughs> It'd be a big deal. So, um, yeah. But then you deal with what Lee mentioned earlier. You're staying one place too long, and, and you basically ravage the land. I mean, any army that's ever stayed in a place for very long, it's they've just, it's like a, yeah, just, yep, it's completely torn out. So, How much did it take to walk? Like, I mean, this this area is not huge. I mean, I think you can get like across here in a month or something like that. I mean, not even a month, um, a week or something. It's not it's not huge. So um, they really are just wandering around in circles in this this area. Um, Yeah, right. I mean, um, we know that they weren't perfectly trusting and obedient through this time. We know that. So, um, but they did seem to follow this um, this path. I mean, they did what they were supposed to do in that way. Um, what does the wilderness wanderings represent in salvation terms? Remember we put the uh, the periods of um, like Egypt, slavery to sin, promised land, new heavens, new earth. So what's the wilderness wanderings? That's what's that? Well, the, it's it's life. <laughs> It's your present life. <laughs> after after coming out of Egypt, out of Egypt, this would be your slavery to sin. You're now a Christian. You're in you're in Christ, but you haven't got to your eternal home yet. So this is life. So wilderness water, wanderings is sanctification. Good. That's a yes. It is. Um, what would it mean that there is a recording of Israel's wanderings? Oh, that's good. A warning and encouragement. How is it a warning? <laughs> so there's so the fact that numbers is is catalog tells you that that your life in the wilderness is not like it doesn't matter. God's recording it. He's actually caring about it. Um, how is it an encouragement? Well, it's not. Yeah, and it's not just that you made it, but that that. That part of your history matters. When we get to eternity, yeah, God provides. That's yeah. But when we get to eternity, our life here in this world does matter. And I don't understand all that. There's a lot of it I'd like God to just forget. Um, but this life is not insignificant, and it's there for our sanctification. But it's also something that God cares enough to actually. Uh, have a log of his people in the wilderness wanderings. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Mm-hmm. And, e- and even though that we don't really know all the things that happened at all those camps, we have a little bit in the book of Numbers, uh, some of the things, we, we know that God is very present in each one of them. Like he, he wanted this to be recorded. It's kind of like sometimes we look at all the names and the censuses and you think, oh, who cares? But, but it's, it's the same principle. Like he cares about John Avery. He cares about the Arnsmans. Like he's... It's it's not just oh yeah he's going to do his plan he's moving on you know but like the individuals your life is is important in God's scheme of how he's bringing all things to pass and so um, 
Even though it looks like just wanderings, God has a purpose. Uh, other things that I see are like, um, it slows down in verse 37. Right, you just kind of get these, doo, 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 doo. why does it slow down in verse 37? 38, 37, 38. Aaron's death. Why would that be important? Aaron's important. The, the death of the high priest is an important thing. Uh, in the book of Hebrews, it tells you that when the high priest dies, it's a whole chan- change of the law kind of thing, you know, like um, transference from one to the other. And so uh, Aaron dying is an important, uh, um, just an important event that they slow down and talk about. Why do you think they give Aaron's age when he dies? Hundred and twenty three years. Uh-huh. Yeah. So it fits with the yeah, it fits with the facts, but but why would the text why would the narrator care that you know that he died at hundred and twenty three years of age? Yeah, but I think there's other ways that they could they could do that. I, I think that so what's the symbolism of dying in the wilderness? <laughs> Typically you're under God's wrath. <laughs> you're you didn't make it to the promised land, you know. Uh what's the symbolism of telling someone that they lived a, a long life? That's a good thing, right? So so you've got Aaron who who dies in the wilderness, uh, bad thing. But they also give statements of him living a long and full life, good thing. And so I, I think similar to Moses, uh, I think that uh, at least some people died in the wilderness who will be eternally redeemed, right? And I think they're making this point here that we shouldn't think that Aaron uh, reprobate, cast off, um, that's not the case. I think they're actually giving a, a nice eulogy for him at this point. Uh, it matters to them. They're, they're in a sense honoring him at this point in a way that you wouldn't honor um, Korah, right? Go ahead, Ann. Again, I think that also s- slows down. I don't know that that's a special day for other, like in history, but it, it, it's very clear that they are marking the time of Aaron's death. This is giving him explicit honor. He didn't just, oh, he died. This is, this is the priest. He died on this day. I'm sure there was a transference of, of the priesthood at that time where you went from Aaron's priesthood down to his, his sons. And so um, it was just more significant, more detail, slowing the text down instead of just this kind of quick repetition. It's like the, the reel's going. You're reading like high speed, high speed, and then slow down. This was an important event. This is, you know, Aaron was important to us, that kind of thing. That's very good, Lily. We do mark the days when, when someone dies. That's right. And particularly someone of importance, right? So, yes. Question here. Yeah. Aaron lived to be, oh, Aaron lived to be 123 uh, during the wanderings in there, there was a time, was there not, when everybody between the ages of 20 or something and older died at, right. at that very young age, supposedly. So he was not included in that number, which is also an indication that there was something special about him. That's exactly right. So, so that's right. Every, supposedly everyone died that was over 40 when they entered in, so he would have been, uh, so yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, I could go through and tell you little things about some of the places. Some of them they know, some of them they don't know. Um, but I'm not going to do that right now. Let's look at verses 50 through 56. Uh, let's let Mr. John Avery read for us right here. And the Lord spoke to Moses in the plains of Moab by the Jordan at Jericho, saying, 
Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When you pass over the Jordan into the land of Canaan, then you shall drive out all the inhabitants of the land from before you and destroy all their figured stones and destroy all their metal images and demolish all their high places. And you shall take possession of the land and settle in it. For I have given you the land, given the land to you to possess it. You shall inherit the land by lot according to your clans. To a large tribe, you shall give a large inheritance. And to a small tribe, you shall give a small inheritance. Whenever the lot falls for anyone, that shall be his. According to the tribes of your fathers, you shall inherit. But if you do not drive out the inhabitants of the land before you, then those of them whom you let remain shall be as barbs in your eyes and thorns in your sides, and they shall trouble you in the land where you dwell. And I will do to you as I thought to do to them. Okay, so like three stages. Uh, you have Egypt, the wilderness, the promised land. We, we know that in some sense this parallels, um, you know, uh, our slavery and sin, uh, justification, sanctification, and eternal glory, right? So that's, that's uh, so... Um, Make some observations about these. Uh, the Lord speaking to Moses at this time. They're just about ready to come into the promised land. Um, and there's, there's a plethora of little details in this. So they're coming uh, right here, Jericho, coming in that way. Um, about God's commands. Uh, we know that many of the speaking to Moses really occurs in the whole book of Deuteronomy. Uh, there's a lot of things that God speaks, but in this particular passage, he's given summary. So these, these summary uh, statements are things that we, kind of like markers that you need to, to uh, um, you know, kind of like putting a picture up on your wall. You're trying to remember these things. So, so what is he supposed to say to them in 52? What's the, what's the statement that he says in, in verse 52? You shall drive out how many? Oh, okay. So uh, think theologically. Um, is God just concerned about uh, people in the physical land of of Israel at this point, or is he also concerned about teaching you a lesson about going from here to here, right? Can you see this? So why is it that God says you must drive out all of them? Mm-hmm. So when you, see, when you hear you shall, um, you're, that's a definitive. Is that what you're getting at? Yeah. So um, will there be unbelievers in eternal life, in eternal glory? None. Will there be just a few of them? There'll be none. None. So if you can imagine if God had said, hey, I'm really just concerned that you guys stay pure and you just kind of, you live, you, you have some good friends, okay, but just keep your life pure that's kind of how we treat Christianity. I mean, and, and we have to do that because we live in a world where we're mixed with uh, unbelievers all the time. That's the world in which we live. But God's not trying to teach that lesson, the lesson of living with unbelievers uh, at this point. He's trying to teach them the lesson that when you go from through the judgment, only those uh, that are redeemed will make it through on the other side. Okay? Um, so he's talking in terms of all, like it's all of them. You don't just drive them out, but what else do you do to them? 
Yeah, you cast out idols, but you also destroy them, right? Uh, and that's a that's pretty strong language, you know. And so God is um, again. Uh, this is all helpful to understand when you're thinking about talking with someone who thinks that God's just being harsh at this time. You just tell them, okay, at the judgment day, will those who refuse Christ be allowed to just exist alongside Christians? No, they will be destroyed. There will <laughs> there's no there's no back doors, and so so God is having to teach this lesson of redemption, even though we're not at the place of final redemption yet. And you're going to see that as we go through the text, because he's 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 uh, explaining this is the this is the ideal, this is the ultimate. You go into the land, you wipe everybody out, everything's good. Yeah, well, sure, uh, but but it's um, it's us thinking about the day of judgment. It's not us uh, setting a pattern like, okay, let's take over Burke County and, and rip out all of the unbelievers out of Burke County. Well, there you go. Uh, the the utter destruction of all sin inside your heart. That that'd be another way you could look at your heart as needing to be destructed. Because here, this is maybe the time of sanctification, but it's only partial. And it's one reason why, um, you know, my heart wants to tell me, ah, some sin's okay, you know, don't worry about that. And in some ways, you have to live with sin even to this day. <laughs> you're not perfect. But you, your, your hope should be, get it all gone. So, uh, complete destruction of sin. Um, so, uh, you see that he's... Uh, um, Debbie mentioned, get rid of all the idols. That's really the, that, that I think connects to the heart issue. Get rid of the high places, uh, the metal images, the figured stone. Get rid of all of that stuff. Um, and then you can settle in the land. Uh, what about in verse 54? <clears throat> what, what can you draw from this? into eternal life or do you have to actually fight to try to enter the land and conquer and win well you have to actively do it but is it all up to you is it is it something that that um you know it, it's you're doing it you're the victor or is it something that you're receiving as an inheritance and you can see the tension in the text here both of those are occurring they're receiving their inheritance it's a gift to them from god not something that they just go in and take for themselves right I have given it to you, right? And I also like this is like, like you have to do this, and and but I'm I've given, yeah. So it, it these are some of the tensions. One of these days, maybe never, but I, in my mind, one of these days, I'd like to write a book on tensions, right? Because this is the tension. Do you, is the Christian life just you know God does it? Yes, it is. Justification really focuses on that, but sanctification is work and it's effort and it's difficult and it's challenging and and so both of those are there, and I think it's here as well. How do you get to heaven? Well, you've got to fight to get to heaven. Uh, how do you get to heaven? Well, it's given to us. Um, how do those fit together? I don't know all the time. So um, notice he even says in 54, uh, according to the tribes of your fathers. So somehow your allotment and your size is, is not just an individual to you personally. It's like you're connected to the people around you. You know, um, 
I don't know what that'll look like on the eternal day, where the Presbyterians be in one place and the Baptists in another. I don't know how that'll all work, right? But somehow there's a, there's a connectionalism to those who went before you, to those who come after you. It's not just you individually. There's um, these tribes uh, will, will fit into God's ordered uh, people as a whole. Um. Mm-hmm. That's right. And it, it really is kind of fun to think about these, these allotments too because some of the people that got allotments down in this region down here, um, Judah, it, this is not really a great region. And um, you might have thought, man, we got slighted. And the people up here had really, really good region. And you might think, well, they, they're the ones that were blessed. But where did all the invasions come from? The, <laughs> the north, so they're the ones, you know, so, and that's not my accident that Judah's a little bit more protected, and it's from Judah that, that the Messiah will come, and they're, they're preserved longer than the northern tribes. Um, let's see. Uh, when it means, when it says you shall take possession of it, what can you draw from that in verse uh, 30, 53? I've given you the land to you to possess it. Okay, so you have to, so it could be to work it as well, okay? How would that work out for eternal life? Maybe you think we'll still work in eternal life, have things to do probably, yeah. Uh, we'll, we'll be engaged with the land. Um, it's not just something that you're there. Uh, you're, we're actually active, possessing the land, enjoying the land in eternal life. So, yes, right. That's right. And how does that relate to the eternal new heavens and new earth. That's, and this is where you have like the, the present life in which you live. It, it, that's why I like to say the new heavens and the new earth because, because the new earth is not a completely different earth. It's not like, okay, get rid of earth and move over and let's all move on to Mars. The pl- present earth in which you're living it will be renewed, it'll be restored, all the marks of the curse will be gone, but this earth will be ours. So we, we, won't, we don't really possess it yet. You know, we don't have dominion over it at this point, uh, but we will. This land is ours um, as, as Christ, belonging to Christ. Uh, and I just say, you know, that the land is not something that'll just be a trophy. We don't just set it on the shelf and look at the glories of heaven um, we're actually in using it and engaging it and enjoying it, um, but without idolatry, right? That's the thing. Ugh, my heart is so prone to making an idol of God's good gifts, and um, it'll be nice to not do that at that time. So, Mm-hmm. Yeah, you think about the millions of people that are redeemed. Uh, verse 55, but, but what? So, okay, so, right, so, so this big but, this, this is where you have to understand what's happening is symbolically going into the promised land is the end. There is no but in, in eternal life, right? I mean, the judgment's going to occur. There won't be anyone that, there won't be sin in that land, okay? But you have to understand that this is symbolically. 
It's a symbol of going into your eternal life. The promised land is not eternal life. Hebrews uh, makes this, this uh, statement when he's, this promised land is supposed to be eternal rest. And yet, and yet Joshua couldn't give him rest. David couldn't give him rest. They couldn't get rest because there's an eternal rest that still awaits you. So I'm telling you, that's our eternal rest. But because this is not our eternal rest, they're going to go into the land and their, their obedience to the command is going to be flawed. God knows this. You know, it's not like, oh, it might happen. He's telling them the command. This is what it should be. Uh, This is what it will be in eternal life. But because you're not there, you're going to go into this land, and you are not going to drive out everybody. And this is what's going to happen to you. Yeah, so, so flawed obedience is disobedience. Yeah, they don't do it perfectly. How about you guys? In your life, have you, have you perfectly cast out all sin in your heart? Have you perfectly, you know, uh, entered your promised rest? No, you haven't. That's right. So, it, it, so you got two things going on here. You can see that, that God could have said, if at the end of history, if you don't, you don't drive out your sin, you don't go in, you're not even going to go into the promised land, right? But he says to them, you're going to have barbs. It's not going to destroy you. It's going gonna, it's gonna to hurt you. So guess what's continuing on? Further sanctification. So even though they're going into their promised land, symbolically eternal rest, it's not really their eternal rest, they're still in some ways in the wilderness because sanctification is still occurring in their lives. Um, Because God says, I will discipline my people because I have to get sin out of their hearts. This is what the book of Hebrews is very clear in stating that he, he loves his people. He doesn't just kill them and destroy them, he takes his people in their, their flawed obedience, and yes, some people can be cut out of Israel, that can happen, but for the most part, God is like, he's, he's using the imperfect obedience to actually create discipline in their hearts so that he can continue to move them on the process of sanctification. Um, so you get to the book of Joshua, let's look at a couple things here. Joshua 15 63. But the Jebusites, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the people of Judah, could not drive out the Jebusites. So the Jebusites dwell with the people of Judah at Jerusalem to this day. What? God said you shall drive them out. Why did they not drive them out? And this is Judah. This is a good, good portion. Maybe some others, they were, you know, um, less, less obedient, but this is a pretty relatively good situation here. They could not drive them out. And who's the one that's going to drive out the Jebusites in Jerusalem? Historically. Pushing you guys forward, huh? David. So why would God allow not allow his people to destroy the Jebusites in Joshua's day because he's waiting for a king who would be the one who would perfectly drive out the Jebusites, right? Now, David doesn't bring that rest either because he's only a foreshadow of the future king in Christ. So again, all of scripture is like giving you like, is this it? Is this the time we're entering the promised land? Uh, No, not quite. And you just keep moving forward until you get to Christ and then you get to the eternal uh, new heavens, new earth. Okay, so Joshua 16.10. However, they did, not dr- they did not drive out. So in Joshua 15, it was they could not, but here they did not drive out the Canaanites who lived in Gezer. So the Canaanites have lived in the midst of Ephraim to this day, but have been made to do forced labor. So it's like, ah, oh, we, we almost got them out. We forced them to be our slaves, uh, but it's not perfect. You can see that, you know, sometimes... Um, you know, we, we have some victory over sin, but it's an imperfect victory over sin. And then in Joshua 17, 12 and 13, 
Yet the people of Manasseh could not take possession of those cities. But the Canaanites persisted in dwelling in the land. Now when the people of Israel grew strong, they put the Canaanites to forced labor, but they did not utterly drive them out. Um, Who do we rely upon to utterly drive out the sin of our hearts? Christ alone. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, see, I, I'm, I'm convinced if, if Christ is going to completely sanctify you on this day, when you go into here, then you have to ask the question, why didn't he do it back in Joshua? He could have taken all the Israelites that went in under Joshua, and they could have perfectly obeyed at that point. Why did God not give them the grace to perfectly obey at that point? If he's going to do it when you reach, see him face to face in glory, why did he do it right now? <laughs> we wouldn't be here. That's, that's a good point. <laughs> um, Future, future salvation of future generations, but also as a training of the gospel. The Israelites need a savior. I love it when Paul says that God bound all people over to disobedience that he might have uh, mercy on some, right? So even the Israelites need to learn that they can't just obey God themselves. Is that not true in your life? If you, if you had become a Christian, uh, you know, I don't know when Melissa Hall, you became a Christian, but you, know, you say it's 15 years old, 18 years old, whatever. You become a Christian. What if you were able to root out all sin at that moment? What is, what is the ongoing struggle of sin taught you? <laughs> you need ongoing. It's, it's made you cling to Christ. It's actually redemptively brought you closer to Christ rather than, oh, I, I conquered my sin. I'm fine. I'm just moving on. And you can, that, it, it's like it forces us to deal with the real sin of autonomy and independence from God, which is, which is really what God wants us to do. Um, <clears throat> all right, questions or comments on that? I know it's just partial, but we're going to go into the next. So, yeah, Howard. <laughs> Maybe I can't. <laughs> Like right here. Here's your team. Yep, yep. Yep, yep. Yes. Yeah. I don't know exactly how long they were in this camp, but yes, all that occurred right then. I don't. They might have been there for a couple months. Yeah, but this is all at that. Yes, it's at that time. <laughs> and you can see that that this is the real problem, right? It's the problem of your heart. It's going in and conquering the land is not really the big problem. The problem is your own heart, and that's what God's teaching His people. Uh, conquering your inner idols is the real struggle. And I think He uses the entirety of the Old Testament to teach us this. Uh, he is intent on helping us to understand how desperately we need a Savior to root out our idols. And the fact that God doesn't just wipe us off the planet is is pretty merciful. So, yeah. Yes. Right, and and so when you start thinking, well, what's the difference between one of the person being allowed to go in and the people that were killed at that, you know, mercy alone. I mean, it's, it's not, it's not, oh, we were better, <laughs> you know, um, it's, it's God's mercy that, that this happens. And so um, the longer that I read the Bible, the more I understand how God wants, he's even able to allow his people to fail in order that they will understand mercy. Um, that's just, yeah, 
<laughs> and it also helps me to understand that that mere, this, this comes from my study of the book of Ezekiel, which is at the end of Israel's history when God is kicking them out of the land. Um, even repeated judgments cannot fix your heart of sin. So it's, you know, it says, spare the rod, spoil the child. So God does discipline his people. Uh, so discipline is very important. But discipline alone is not enough to change the heart. This is why we have up here, I will remove your heart of stone. I will give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and keep my laws. It's like, that is, it. so if I get done with Ezekiel, uh, we'll, we'll study that eventually. But like, you, it's bookends, right? They're going into the land of Israel here. Ezekiel, they're being kicked out of the land of Israel. And it's basically the same lesson again. You just keep disobeying. You can't get this fixed. And, and you can't say God wasn't a good parent. He, he, he took, brought them to judges. He brought them to kings. He brought them to prophets. He was calling them to repentance. He was doing all kinds of stuff. And some of them did repent, but... But by and large, they, they just were not who he wanted them to be. So how do we get to the point where everybody in the land of Israel, the promised land, is doing what God wants? Grace alone. That's it. Sheer grace that he works in us. Yes, go ahead. You just mentioned that discipline alone does not take care of those issues. And that seems to address part of, in present day, the penal system in the present day with prisons and those kind of things. It doesn't cure the real problem. Just alone. Can't. Not, not that we should just throw it out. And it can be a deterrent uh, in some sense, but it doesn't fix the heart. It doesn't actually make you yearn for true righteousness and holiness. Only God can do that. That's right. That's exactly Union with Christ. Yep. All right. We're going to, we are going to at least get started in 34. We may not get too far, but we'll try. Um, What we're going to see here, we're going to switch from the people and their need to drive out all of the, uh, the people, uh, that's, that lesson is, is moving, fading away. And what now is coming in is we're going to focus on the land and we're going to focus on the borders of that land, okay? Um, so the, the original borders of the promised land are going to be ideally presented. And it's not by accident that the book of Ezekiel will also present ideal borders of the promised land, a little bit slightly different. But here at the beginning, you're going to get, these are the borders because we're going to give you an ideal presentation of the promised land. Um, Let's read 1 through 12. So, uh, Howard, do you want to read for us? The Lord said to Moses... Command the Israelites and say to them, When you enter Canaan, the land that will be allotted to you as an inheritance will have these boundaries. Your southern side will include some of the desert of Zin along the border of Edom. On the east, your southern boundary will start from the end of the Salt Sea, cross south of the Scorpion Pass, continue on to Zin, and go south of Kadesh Barnea. Then it will go to Hazar Adar and over to Asman, where mm-hmm. it will turn, join the wall, the wadi of Egypt, and end at the sea. Your western boundary will be the coast of the Great Sea. That's an easy one. This will be your boundary on the west. For your northern boundary, run a line from the Great Sea to Mount Hor, and from Mount Hor to Lebo Hamath, then the boundary will go to Zedad, continue to Ziphron, and end at Hazar Enon. 
this will be your boundary on the north. For your eastern boundary, run a line from Hazar Anon to Stepham. The boundary will go down from Stepham to Riblah on the east side of Ain and continue along the slopes east of the Sea of Kinnereth. Then the boundary will go down along the Jordan and end at the Salt Sea. This will be your land with its boundaries on every side. Okay. Now you probably have maps in, before you, so that's, that's helpful in this, but if you're, you're basically seeing it, it's coming at the bottom of the Dead Sea and it's kind of headed a little bit downward and then back up till it gets to the Mediterranean. This area here, Gaza, would be like the Gaza Strip and the land of the Philistines. You, but you, you head up here to you almost up Mount Hor or Mount Hermon, you're getting up here, and it goes across and there's Zadad, but then it doesn't just go straight down, it, it kind of curves back and then just follows the Jordan River back down this way. So this is the, the, the way the borders are given right here. And then this whole portion on the other side are the, the portion inhabited by the two and a half tribes, but that's specifically not called the promised land at this point. It's like it's not the ideal borders, which again, in my opinion, tells me that these borders are not the final borders, but they are the borders that God says right now. Now, what would, what would having very distinct borders tell you? How does this help the Israelites as they're heading into the promised land? All right, so you, you can be content with what you've been given. Good. Okay, you, when you're going in to conquer, you know where you need to conquer to. Like, we don't have to go further than this. But it also says you need to then protect that land. Good. Yeah. Okay, so there's a concreteness to the promise. It's not vague. Okay, now this is where um, the dispensationalists get upset at us reformed people, at least people like me, that have a view of the promised land. See, I, I think the promised land is a foreshadow of the whole earth. There are no boundaries. It's just the entire earth, right? But, but they would say, no, 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 those are very concrete promises, and we need to have those exact promises be fulfilled so if you're a dispensationalist, where do those promises get fulfilled? Because it's never occurred in, under David or Solomon or anyone. It's never exactly gotten there in the thousand years during the millennium. That's when all these promises will be concretely fulfilled. So, but I think it, as Joshua was going in, it definitely gives them a concreteness. You know if you've completed the job. It's not a, it's not a vague command. It's a very concrete command that you are going in. There's, there's borders, there's boundaries, those sorts of things. Mm-hmm. Isn't that fun how you can bring, like, sovereignty into the whole thing, right? Um, so you, you can imagine just how problematic would it be that, oh, God's kingdom will reign, just this, this land of Israel. The rest of the earth won't be God's kingdom. Can you imagine getting to that place? That'd be crazy, wouldn't it? That's why you have to expand it, right? And even if you're a dispensationalist and you say these promises will be perfectly fulfilled, concretely fulfilled in the land of Israel during the millennium, they still then say, but after that time, all the earth will become Christ. And I just think, well, it all belongs to him now. <laughs> uh, so... Yeah, that's an, it's an interesting statement because it hadn't. If you go to the, I mean, it's just clearly Joshua tells you that there are areas that didn't get completely taken, but Joshua wants to be very positive and he wants you to think that, yeah, God has fulfilled all his promises. And so that's helpful to us as well, but you have to be careful because it, it's obvious from reading the rest of Joshua that it hadn't been completely fulfilled. So, um. 
Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No, I think that it, it, this, this idea of concreteness is a good thing. It really is important. You know, we're there. We're almost, you know, you're, it's very concrete. We know if we've, we've done this or not, right? It's a, and it will be a marker for them that they have failed. If God didn't make the borders concrete, they wouldn't know if they had failed or not failed, right? I mean, so it's, it, this is very important in the whole plan that there's a concreteness to it. Um, All right, that's it. We got part of the way through, but not all the way through 34. So, all right, if if God is merciful, we'll finish this next week. If not, we'll take one more week. So, um, Father, thank you so much for the word of God. Thank you that you are my savior. I need you. Um, forgive my imperfect obedience. Um, forgive my disobedience. Uh, and help me to cling to Christ and help us as a church to cling to Christ um, who is our only hope. In Jesus' name, amen.